welcome to Emotion Well, EFR's podcast about all things related to emotional wellness. I'm Johanna Dunlevy, the wellness manager for Employee and Family Resources, also known as EFR, and I'm the host of our podcast. As an FYI, EFR is located in Des Moines, Iowa, and we are Iowa's first employee assistance program and provide a variety of services you can learn more about at www.efr.org. We are here today with my colleague, Haley Peterson-Hundley, who I am very excited to talk about because Haley and I have worked together for four, almost five years now. Uh, When I was expecting my daughter, Haley and I were colleagues, and then a couple of years after my daughter was born, Haley had her own daughter. So I'm very excited to be here with Haley talking about postpartum maternal health, specifically postpartum emotional health. Haley, tell us a little bit about yourself. Yes, thank you so much for having me. Um, I have worked at EFR for about four and a half years. I started here as a substance use disorder prevention specialist, serving um, all the counties that we served back then. Um, Three years ago, I started working as a grant coordinator where I began managing my own grant that focused on non-medical use of prescription drug prevention, specifically in Polk County, Iowa. So um, I do a lot of services here, specifically in the Des Moines area. I got married about three years ago to my husband, Chris, and 16 months ago, we had our daughter, Charlotte. I will probably refer to her more likely as Charlie. Um, That's what we like to call her. And then um, a couple months ago, we adopted our puppy, Riley, because we weren't busy enough with a toddler. So (laughs) we brought in a puppy. It gives her a nice playmate. Very true. They are best (laughs) friends. So it worked out. Excellent. Well, before we kick off our conversation and you share your story, I want to share information with our listeners about postpartum mental health and just to kind of lay the groundwork for what what we're going to be talking about. So postpartum refers to the first two to three, two to three months after giving birth. So when you think about that, um, most, not, not all, but most women are maybe on maternity leave during this um, period of postpartum health. So the first two to three months after giving birth is the postpartum period. Uh, perinatal, which would be around the birth, and postpartum mental illness range from the relatively benign baby blues to the most severe postpartum psychosis. Uh, just doing some quick, you know, internet findings on postpartumdepression.org. I see that anywhere from 60 to 80% of new mothers will experience the depressed mood, often called the baby blues. But these symptoms typically dissipate within a week or two and, you know, typically don't need any kind of treatment. Postpartum depression afflicts approximately 10 to 20% of new moms. Uh, It's more severe and lasts for a longer period of time. Postpartum OCD, which would be obsessive compulsive disorder, affects approximately 3 to 5% of new mothers and has symptoms similar to those seen um, in just a typical OCD. And uh, in mothers with perinatal or postpartum OCD, the focus of the obsession is typically Um, the fear of purposely harming the newborn or somehow being responsible for accidental harm of the newborn. So I'm going to let Haley share her story. Uh, I'm curious to know, prior to having your daughter, Haley, what type of information or what type of advice did you get prepped for? How did you envision motherhood and how did your friends and family members kind of get you ready for it? So when I first found out I was pregnant, lots and lots of advice was coming in from 
friends, colleagues, um, just different people I knew in the community with this job about how tired I was going to be, you know, sleep when the baby (laughs) sleeps, but also how the instant your baby is born, you're going to experience this baby bliss that you've never experienced before. I was also given a lot of advice on, you know, different clothes to buy, make sure you don't buy newborn stuff um, because your baby won't fit in. Grow out of it. Yes. Um, (laughs) All the stuff about diapers. My mom specifically was always like, you girls could only wear huggies. So maybe stock up on huggies. Um, so we just, you know, you get all this advice. The typical advice. Yeah. yeah. And I do appreciate all that stuff that was given, but I felt like I was not given adequate information to care for myself after my baby was born. I was given all of this stuff of how to take care of Charlie, but there was nothing about you transitioning into this entirely new person with a new body and a new brain, honestly, after you have a baby. I was not given any of that. It's really like a new identity, you know, because you're now a mother and it just changes kind of everything about your life and and your personhood. So I I think about that myself because I was in my mid-30s when my daughter was born and I was about the last, if not the last, of all of my friends to have a child. I was for sure the last of all of my friends to have a first child. So all of my close friends, you know – who are mothers, had their children before me. Uh, I have a sister with five kids. And so, yeah, I was one of the last to become a mom, which in many ways has its perks. But I also received very, very similar advice related to breastfeeding and diapers and, you know, sleep when the baby sleeps and all of the things that people are really comfortable sharing. And I think people feel really confident sharing that information because they know what worked for them and they want it to work for you too. But when I think back to all of the conversations I had before my daughter was born and even immediately after, you know, I think only one woman said, hey, uh, you might feel a little off after your baby is born and it's normal, but you don't have to feel that way. You can you can get help. You can talk to someone. And, you know, this is a woman whose children are adults, so she's uh, a few decades away from being a new mom, parenting an infant. And I just, you know, as I look back on that now, I think, wow, that's interesting. And really, I've only had a couple of friends ever share stories about postpartum depression or postpartum anxiety. And while I'd like to think that that's only because a couple of my friends have experienced it, I just, I don't believe that's true. I, I believe that a lot of them have experienced it, but no one really talks about it. So uh, I think if you're listening and you are, expecting a baby or if you're listening and you have someone in your life who is I think this would be a great podcast to share with them I think it's good to just be transparent and help our friends and mothers out right so you had your daughter and tell us about your own postpartum experience so we didn't necessarily have a typical postpartum experience at about 37 weeks I was diagnosed with um preeclampsia, which basically I was having high blood pressure, having protein spillage um, in my urine, um, which are basically two of the main indicators that you need to deliver sooner rather than later. Um, At 37 weeks, we decided like I was kind of borderline so we could continue and attempt to get farther to that 40-week benchmark to when hopefully she would decide to come naturally. Um... Uh, At about 37 weeks, five days, I had another checkup, 
and they did um, decide that I needed to do another exciting 24-hour urine catch where <laughs> I had to do all that gross all stuff. All the things that no one tells you about. Yes. <laughs> and that Saturday, I had to take my jug of urine into the hospital, and they decided that I had too much protein in my urine. My blood pressure was too high. Um, she needed to be born sooner rather than later. So that was 7 a.m. on a Saturday. We honestly thought we were going to go home, so we didn't have any of our bags packed. We um, assumed I was dropping off, and they'd give us the okay to go home, and we had, like, all these plans for that day, and um, none of that happened. We ended up being admitted immediately, and they started our induction process on that Saturday. Um, She was born the next day on Sunday, and we were released from the hospital a couple days later, and we went home. Normally, when you have preeclampsia, your body regulates itself as soon as the baby is born, and you no longer have a placenta in your body. Unfortunately, in my case and in many of my friends' cases, um, my blood pressure did not regulate itself. It continued to go higher and higher to the point where I had to be rehospitalized for a few days, about a week after Charlie was born. And were you checking your blood pressure at home, or could you just tell, did you have a headache, and could you just tell that you had high blood pressure? So I was, and again, I don't know whether this was attributing to anxiety or if it was blood pressure, but I was experiencing extreme shortness of breath. Okay. And I'd never had that before. Okay. So I knew something was wrong. And I purchased a blood pressure cuff and I would check my blood pressure and my mom is a nurse. So my mom would come over in the morning and at night after she was working and check my blood pressure. And we ended up going to the hospital because my blood pressure was too high. Um, Ended up being rehospitalized for, I think, three days. And luckily, Charlotte was able to come and stay with me there. Very nice. And we were then re-released. So we didn't really have that typical story of, like, you get to go home and you learn to be a family. We were home for a few days, back for a few days, and then we were back home. Um, After we were re-hospitalized, we, you know, were still struggling with the whole breastfeeding thing. I was a first-time mom, didn't really know what I was doing about that, so my main focus was always on making sure she was eating, making sure I was producing enough milk. How many di- how many wet diapers? I remember the like yes. you were tr- like did you use an app to track the diapers yes. and the feedings? I did too. Yes, we did. <laughs> I remember. And making sure, you know, you're using the right breast to nurse her, you uh-huh. know, going back and forth, yes. making sure you're supplied. Making sure you don't get mastitis. Yes. There's so many things. Yeah. <laughs> yes. Pumping in the middle, making sure I'm upping my supply level. Um, when she was born, she was six pounds, nine and a half ounces. At her week checkup, she was down to five pounds, 13 ounces. So I was very concerned borderline obsessed with her weight and making sure I was producing enough milk for her. Um, At this point, we, you know, I began pumping. We would nurse on demand after she refused to nurse anymore. We would try and give her the bottle of pumped breast milk. Um, So basically this whole time, this is what I am focusing on. At her two-week checkup, we were back above um, her birth weight, which for people who aren't aware, once you get your baby gets back above birth weight, you can go to more on-demand feeding where before you have to do every two hours mm-hmm. per what our pediatrician recommended. Um, so I was extremely excited that day that, hey, we're going to get asleep for three, four hours, whatever she'll let us do. Um, that night, 
we went to sleep and the next day I woke up and it was like I was a whole new person. My brain was in a constant fog and fear had basically just taken over my body um, psychologically and physically. Like I was sick to my stomach all day. I had a headache um, and I began obsessing. My first obsession that I can recall aside from her birth weight um, was her sleeping. So we went out and we purchased an outlet, which is a pulse oxygen monitor, um, which would track her while she would sleep. And there was, it would basically alert if her oxygen went too low or if her pulse went too low. So we um, purchased that, which was expensive, but I will say I, it helped me to have that. Um, after having, you know, a few nights of that, my thoughts kind of transitioned over to basically any way harm could happen to her. I was terrified of that happening. So one of the main ones that I recall being extremely traumatizing to me was I, we were standing by the stairs and I was so afraid that she could, we could fall down the stairs. And then that thought transitioned into, well, why am I thinking that? If I'm thinking that she could fall down the stairs, am I thinking that I could, um, you know, push her down the stairs? Am I thinking all of these things? And these thoughts no longer are just single thoughts. It's something that I begin obsessing on and going down this rabbit hole where I was unable to pull myself back out. They were just kind of unraveling and yeah, you couldn't reel them back in. Yeah. So I was getting deeper and deeper and I just knew that this wasn't normal um, for me. And so I began doing like hours and hours of research to try and figure out like ways that I can stay away from stairs and um, ways that I can make sure harm doesn't come to her, you know, like because anything we would do, my brain would automatically transition to, well, she could get hurt this way. Mm -hmm. She could get hurt that way. So did you hold your baby a lot? No. So um, at the beginning, I held her nonstop. Once this stuff started kicking in, I was very afraid that I could be responsible for the harm coming to her. And I think you kind of mentioned one of the statistics at the beginning was that is one of the biggest obsessions is like being the fear of being responsible mm -hmm. for something negatively affecting your baby, um, whether that's accidental or purposeful. Um, so that fear really was all consuming for me. And I decided that I needed to do something about it. So I tried, I had shared this with very few people when it first started, um, but my mom and my husband were able to notice that something was off with me. And so I ended up sharing it with them and told them what was going on. And they both suggested, why don't you just call your OB? I'm sure it's normal, you know, go in and get seen. So I called my OB and they sent me this um, Edinburgh postnatal depression scale, which was basically a scale that checks to see if you have depression symptoms. Um, examples were, I am happy all the time, none of the time, things like that. Um, I feel like I could harm myself, you know, all these different scales, and you have to answer it. Well, when I submitted this scale, they were like, you pass with flying colors, you don't have depression. And, I, and did you already kind of have a feeling that 
you didn't have like did you understand enough about depression to know that that wasn't what you were experiencing yeah yeah so I've always kind of had anxiety and what I've learned um since having my daughters I've always had OCD tendencies um but I've never had depression and I knew during this time that this was not depression that I was experiencing I did not have sad feelings I was scared 24 7 like I lived in this state of fight or flight and I really I knew it wasn't depression and so when they sent me the scale I told them like I know that I don't have this happening but something is happening I'm I'm not well right now I need I need help um so when my symptoms didn't fit with the depression scale, they said, okay, you most likely have postpartum anxiety. And they gave me a list of resources and they started me on medication. That medication was not good for me. And five days later, um, the side effects were so bad that I ended up going to the emergency room. Um, and we were kind of sharing a little bit about this before we started recording in the emergency room, I was met with someone, I think, who had very little knowledge about postpartum mental health and also, um, I think, maybe just like a lack of empathy and understanding. Um, I was very afraid to share this information with people because I was afraid with being, you know, so in it. I already have these obsessions and I'm scared 24-7. I didn't want to share this with strangers. Um, but I was because I wanted to make sure my daughter was safe and mm -hmm. I wanted to make sure I was safe. Um, luckily, the psychiatrist who was on call there realized that most of these things were probably side effects from the medicine that they had started me on. So they stopped me on that and started me on a new medication. I also started um, using our EAP right away to get into therapy uh, again even thinking about therapists, those who are licensed, not all of them are even fully aware of all the different postpartum um, perinatal mood disorders that exist. And my first experience meeting with this specific therapist, unfortunately, was negative. Um, she, you could tell, instantly went into like this safety mode where we needed to create a safety plan, which I think ultimately made me feel more scared. More anxious. Yeah. And and because I began thinking, well, if she thinks I'm a danger to myself or my daughter, am I a danger to myself or my daughter? And all of these thoughts just were obsessive and, like, I just could not get out of and them. And so what week is this approximately? So when I was able to get in to see this um, therapist, I was probably in week four. Okay. So I went to my OB in week it was the end of week two, so I probably saw my OB week three. And then by week four is when I needed to be switched off okay. of medication, okay. medications. So um, week four or five, I'm seeing this therapist. And at this point, I've been in this, all I know how to describe it as is like fog for two weeks now. And I feel like a lot of women describe it as a fog. Yeah. I think that's a really common... Yeah. Way for people to characterize the, the ways they feel. And I think some women characterize it as a fog because they're sleep. I think there's that, you know, you haven't been sleeping as much. You've got this whole new identity. But I think there's a difference between that kind of a fog and the fog that comes with depression and anxiety as it relates to your hormones after you have a baby. I completely agree. I think, like, you can, when you're in a fog 
So say my daughter last night refused to sleep. Like we were up all night. So I feel foggy today. But this fog is something I recognize while I'm in it. Um, the fog that I was experiencing when she was a newborn, I was not aware of until I stepped out of it. So I didn't realize I was a completely different person and I didn't know myself until one day I literally like we were I remember the instance we were driving down the road and I felt like myself again and I was like I have not been here for a month and a half yeah. or however long yeah. it was and that was a scary feeling to be like wow like that was a long time of being something that you're not yeah. used to. One of my friends who was candid about her experience uh, at, long after the fact shared something really similar. It was like, and her daughter was older, like eight or nine months. And she said that one day she was just walking outside and she noticed the sun was shining. Yeah. And it was just like she, it was like she had a whole different perspective on her environment and her own life. And she was like, yeah, it was just, and everything was good from there on. It was just like a, Kind of like you said, it felt like a switch was flipped yep. after that two-week appointment. Yep. I feel like some people come out of it in a similar mm -hmm. way. That's exactly you know? how it was for me. It was like, and very similar, I was looking at the trees and I was like, oh, that tree is beautiful. And I was like, wait, I'm I'm back. I'm this noticing something. Yeah, yeah, this is me. I'm not, a, I'm not continuously in my head. Um, and so that was probably a month and a half of being on this new medicine that really helped me to level out. And on top of that, I was seeing this one therapist once a week. Our first appointment was obviously pretty negative, but I decided I was going to go back again because I don't know, probably selfishly, I'm like, she's not, that's not going to be the last time she sees me. Like I'm going to get better and yeah. she's going to know that I'm not a safety risk. Yeah. And so I continued seeing her for months. Um, and I would see her once a week. Um, there, this kind of jumps a little bit ahead, but there's a specialist in the Des Moines area who works at Broadlands, um, for, with postpartum, um, mood disorders, and she specializes in postpartum OCD. Um, it was almost impossible to get into her. There was a two month wait. Oh, wow. And when I was needing emergent help, two months was far well, too for long. anyone having a mental health crisis. Yeah. Two months, is, it's, not, it's not acceptable. Yeah. You know, you just can't wait that yeah. long. Yeah. And so I uh, called her and she would meet with me on the phone. She was absolutely amazing. And she let me know that there was a support group that happened once a week at Broadlands. Um, so I started attending this support and group. And it was specific to postpartum OCD or this just, one was, just general postpartum depression, anxiety, yes. OCD? Yep. It was okay. any of them. And it didn't have to be. It was perinatal. So there was actually um, a lady in there with me who was pregnant. Okay. Um, and then there was my first time I went, it was just this other lady and myself. She was pregnant um, and had a history of, um, you know, mood disorders. And so she was, you know, wanting to be proactive about it. And so it was just the two of us. And she had been there many of times up to this point, And it was my first session. And so it was honestly almost like a one-on-one -on -one with like a guest counseling yeah. session where yeah. I got to um, meet with her name was Christine Young and she was amazing she like helped me tremendously and I was able to go to those count or those 
support groups and meet with other women who I don't think when I was in the support group I don't think I knew any other women who had specifically what I was having Mm -hmm. um but we were all across the spectrum we had women who had depression some who were you know experiencing anxiety some who just you know probably needed a break um and so we were able to go there it was also nice because we were able to take our babies with us and we didn't have to try and arrange daycare and figure all of that out so that was really nice I started doing that once a week and then I also after a while was able to get into see Christine and I was doing once a week appointments specifically with her as well and I would say um I continued all of this up until I went back to work at my 12-week mark. I'm beyond thankful for my employer, um, EFR. They worked with me so much when I was first coming back. My mental health was still not the best at 12 weeks, and I was very open and honest with my supervisor and just said, I'm really not in the capacity right now to come back full-time. Like, I need to ease myself back Mm -hmm. in. And they were beyond amazing and worked with me to come back in a shorter capacity for a couple of weeks. And then when I felt like I was ready, then I started coming back full time. Um, And I think, you know, a lot of people don't have that opportunity. But if they do, I think that is something that's really helpful to be able to slowly transition back into regular life. And also with someone with mood disorders in general, specifically myself, any changes really messes with, you know, what's normal for me and what makes me feel safe. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, you go from working every day and I was also prior to having my daughter working on my master's degree. So I had all of these things going and then I had my baby and I had my baby. That was the only thing I was doing Mm -hmm. was taking care of this newborn. And so, like, my whole world stopped at that point. And then um, I came back to work, and it transitioned from, okay, well, now I'm just taking care of my baby to now I have to be a mom. Now you have – it's all these identities. Yeah. So it's like on maternity leave, you can focus on being a mother, and then you're a mother and a prevention specialist, and maybe a mother and a prevention specialist and a student. And and all of that just kind of compounds itself, I think. And – can be very overwhelming. I I do remember the transition back to work. I also took a 12-week maternity leave, and I'm thankful for that. Uh, You know, I I don't think I could have come back much earlier. I know some women don't have the option, and wow, I can't imagine, uh, because 12 weeks is not a long time. Uh, I think you're finally starting to, you know, get the breastfeeding thing down. If you're, if you are breastfeeding and you may be sleeping a little bit more, but uh, still probably not a lot. And so I just think for women who go back to work after a couple of weeks or sooner, mm-hmm. I mean, my, yeah. And that's a whole different conversation and issue that, you know, has been receiving a lot of attention, thankfully. But you're right. I think for, for anyone with a supportive employer, and of course EFR gets this because mm-hmm. this is what we do. We help people manage life's challenges, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so it's it's great that you can recognize that you had not only a resource within your employer, your EAP to turn to, but you also had an employer that was understanding and that you felt comfortable sharing that. Yeah. With them. And I feel like a lot of people probably don't have that. And that's why um, 
when I started experiencing these things and when I told my husband when I was out of this fog, when I was better, and I told him, like, after she's a year old, I know if I can make it to a year, I know I'm going to be better. And Mm -hmm. it didn't take a year for me to be better, but I gave myself that landmark to be like, I know that by this point I will be okay. And I told him, I was like, "When, when I'm feeling better, I want to share my story with people because I don't want anybody else to go through what I went through. I feel like if I would have recognized that this was a possibility, that everybody has these intrusive thoughts, that it wasn't just me, and just because I have a thought doesn't mean that that thought means anything, um, I don't necessarily know that I would have spiraled so Mm -hmm. far and so hard down into a place where um, I was severely um, unwell, basically. And through all of these different therapies and counseling sessions and um, support groups. Ultimately, they diagnosed me with postpartum OCD, um, but my obsession or my compulsion, excuse me, was invisible to the fact of I was consistently seeking out reassurance and um, my compulsion also was research. So I would spend hours and hours researching, is this normal? Is this okay? Um, So like your obsession could be something like you're daughter falling down the stairs or you dropping your daughter down yep. the stairs. That was the obsession. It yep. was the obsessive thought. And then yep. the compulsive behavior was looking up different ways to avoid the stairs. Or yeah. So it was kind of like you had the obsessive thought process and then the compulsion came through basically like Avo- research yeah, and, and or avoidance, avoidance of yeah. things. And my compulsion also was – Um, I was very afraid that, okay, and this is very common with women who have postpartum OCD, especially when it comes to like the harm thoughts, when they're worried about purposeful or accidental harm coming to their um, child, they are very afraid that it's not postpartum OCD. And one of the things that I've learned about OCD is it's kind of a shapeshifter. So OCD has many hats. Um, And once you kind of feel comfortable and you're able to manage one form of OCD, it can switch and go to a different form of OCD. So, like, I would be obsessed with, like, um, being afraid that we could fall down the stairs or that, you know, if what if I wanted her to fall down the stairs? Then it would shift to, like, okay, now I'm having these thoughts. Am I having a psychotic break? Am I having Mm -hmm. postpartum psychosis? Mm -hmm. And so then that would switch to that kind of obsession and I would do hours of research um, trying to figure out okay is this OCD or is this psychosis like what was the distinguishment and basically what I was searching for was that feeling of okay I'm okay this is just OCD like I can manage this well the problem is that was so short-lived I would instantly have to go find another article to read another research um that I'm had been this done. was exhausting yeah very I mean you're already tired because you're caring for another human being and you're not sleeping as much as you are used to but then you know the exhaustion of just constantly thinking about this and then the act of researching it yeah and I would just keep like looking and I would say one article one day would help me I um if you look at my personal laptop, I still have them all 
on, in my bookmarked. hand. Yeah, they're yeah. all bookmarked. You look across the top, it's postpartum OCD, postpartum support international, all of these different things because it would be like, okay, this helped me one day. I'm going to save this. Well, the next day I would go and I would pick up on something that I didn't notice before. And I'd be like, okay, well, I didn't read that before. Maybe that means it's not this. And I mean, it shapeshifted all yeah, the time. That's so. interesting. Uh, when I was doing a little research about postpartum OCD, it just talked about how the symptoms are often confused with anxiety or depression, so it's often misdiagnosed. There's also less awareness about postpartum OCD, uh, but it is its own unique condi- condition. Um, and then some of the examples, and these are some of the same things that you talked about, but obsessively checking the baby while the baby sleeps, asking family members for reassurance that the baby has not been harmed or abused, going over the day's events mentally to ensure that nothing bad has happened to the baby, being scared of making poor decisions that will cause the baby harm or death, fear that the baby will develop a serious disease, fear of exposing the baby to toxins and chemicals and other environmental pollutants. So those are just a few examples that I got from postpartumdepression.org and ocdla.com. And it sounds like at least like two or three of those are exactly what you kind of cited. Uh, I was also just looking up information about, you know, what puts someone at risk for any kind of postpartum mental health uh, diagnosis. And it'd be if you have an existing, you know, diagnosis of depression or anxiety or OCD, uh, if you experienced any of that during your pregnancy, if you uh, also have if, if there's noticeable mood differences during um, your periods, mm-hmm. so during hormonal changes. Um, I, th- I think this is interesting. It does relate to your situation. Um, a health scare. So with your preeclampsia, um, the health scare of for a mother or a baby, a colicky babies. My daughter was colicky, and I do remember that being really difficult um, just because as a parent, you don't really know what to do because your baby – is crying and typically, at least in my experience and the experience I've um, learned from some of my friends is that colicky babies typically tend to have a witching hour. And so (laughs) I noticed my anxiety would increase um, the closer we got to about 4 p.m. because from like 4 p.m. to maybe 8 or 9 p.m. she was pretty fussy. And so um, I did never really want to leave our apartment because what if she has what if she just cries the whole time? Um, so I think that's interesting that, uh, you know, parents of colicky babies are going to maybe experience this, um, or are more likely to experience it. And then social isolation and lack of partner support. And the social isolation is really interesting, especially as we think about the COVID circumstances, you know, a lot of people, um, you know, you, I know your mom lives nearby and so that's great that you have the support of your mother, but, you know, a lot of people don't have that. Um, so I think a lot about single parents. I think about people that don't have any immediate family in the area. Uh, and then I think about the COVID situation and how much that's going to increase anxiety, potentially depression, and even OCD around, you know, becoming a, a mom. Uh, and I think about just the fact that things are different for new moms now, um, I'm guessing that a lot of new moms aren't inviting their friends over to meet the baby or, you know, doing the things that can typically provide relief or support for the, for the mother. So I think that's interesting. Um, one thing that I've often reminded myself of, and I've shared this with other people, I don't remember where I 
where I heard it, but uh, don't compare your inside to someone else's outside. And so I think about this a lot as it relates to social media because, well, first of all, I don't, I think social media can be so harmful to our emotional health. Um, I would find myself comparing, you know, my daughter's, oh, my daughter didn't hit that milestone, but that baby was born two weeks before her and, and that baby's walking already. And so I just think about, you know, comparing your life, what's going on inside your life to what someone else is showing on the outside. So it's like, just because, you know, I'm feeling this way and someone else's life looks really rosy or glossy doesn't mean that they feel that way. It's just the image that they're putting up. So don't compare your inside to someone else's outside for many, many things in life, mm-hmm. but especially for people who are uh, venturing into motherhood. So Haley, what would you tell a soon-to-be mom or a new mom that you wish someone would have shared with you? So I think one of the main things that I um, wish someone would have told me is there is a spectrum of mood disorders that you could experience. I think we're doing a great job right now of getting more uh, knowledge out there about mood disorders in general. We're seeing a lot more information out there on depression, anxiety. Um, But I also think we need to lose that um, stigma around specifically postpartum because you're supposed to be this happy person, but that's not always what happens. There's a lot of things that can happen within that spectrum. Um, I also think one of the things I uh, wrote down when I was preparing for this is um, I wish that I would have looked up the resources prior to needing them. I saw this resource on Postpartum Support International that basically mentioned um, all these conversations that you have with your support person. So whether that's your spouse, whether that's your parent, maybe it's a sibling of yours, um, all these things you discuss and it's like um, clothing, what diapers we're going to have, all of these things that, yeah, you need to talk about, but you don't necessarily have to have hours and hours of conversation over. And then things we should have talked about. And it's like, what do we do when I'm not okay or if I'm not okay? Mm -hmm. Because this isn't going to affect everybody, but it does affect a lot more people than I think talk about it. But how do we know if I need to um, be seen by my OB, okay? Where are, um, you know, who's going to be responsible for what within the household? So I think having those very serious conversations ahead of time Mm -hmm. um, just to be prepared as to what could happen. Um, Another thing is um, postpartum depression and anxiety can actually happen to the support partner as well. So it can actually happen to um, specifically, in my case, it could happen to the father. Mm -hmm. And he did experience um, some symptoms of it too. And part of it could have been because he was having to take on a lot more because I was struggling so Mm -hmm. much. Um, so I think it's just really important to have those conversations before, and you were recalling or talking about social media. Um, one of the things I wish I knew was to like, not look at it so much. What you were mentioning when I was in, um, the depth of it, I removed all social media from all of my devices. I blocked it from my computers. I took it off of my phones, my phone. Um, I just didn't want to see it. I didn't want any of that to be 
where I could have access to it because anytime I would look at it, it would just make me feel worse. I had friends who had babies very close in time mm-hmm. to me and they all looked perfect. Yep. And I could not come across that way. Like, cause we were struggling, like mm-hmm. we were struggling pretty hard and I wasn't going to put this out there, but you know, looking back, I've talked to a lot of these people who had babies around the same time I did. And a lot of them were struggling too, right. but it didn't look like that. Right. So, um, that was just one of the things I noted that I wish, and if we were to have any more children, I would make sure that I'm more just aware. more prepared. Yeah, so, you know, for for those of you listening, if any of this information resonates, um, you maybe think that you're experiencing some postpartum mental health issues or that a loved one is, there are a lot of resources available. Haley, you mentioned a website that I'll link in our show notes, and I'll also link to um, the, the websites where I pulled my information from. But I think the biggest thing we can do is advocate for our own selves and Um, you know, it goes back to self-care. So you can't pour from an empty cup. Uh, You have to put your oxygen mask on first. So in order to be able to take care of another person, you have to be taking care of yourself. And so um, not being afraid to speak up, to say something, you know, even if it's um, saying it to yourself in the mirror, you know, like this, this isn't me, this doesn't seem like me. And then telling your partner or someone you trust, telling a healthcare provider, I also think when it comes to your relationship with your healthcare provider, you need to be an advocate for yourself because they see a lot of patients and they they don't know you very well. You know, we like to think that they know us really well, but you know, we're one of many patients and so the 10 or 15 minutes you may spend with them, um they might say, "Yeah, no, you don't have postpartum depression," but in your head you're going, "But there's something off." So advocate for yourself and um say, "Hey, you know what?" I agree. I don't have that, but there's, there's something else going on. So can you refer me to someone who can help me? And so I think being your, you know, your best advocate is always good advice, regardless of what, um, your, your health concerns are. So help, help the moms that you know, and, uh, step up. And if you're comfortable sharing, I think the more people share about this information, the less stigma it carries and the more we kind of normalize it. And I think that's really important. So I want to thank you so much for sharing your story today. I think this will help so many people and best wishes with Charlie as she's 16 months old. I'm sure she's a ball of fun right now. (laughs) Yeah, she's busy. Uh, So enjoy, enjoy every aspect of motherhood and every phase and stage. But thank you so much, Haley. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Emotion Well. Please subscribe to us and don't forget to rate us. We can be found on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Spotify. Emotion Well is hosted by Johanna Dunleavy and produced by Emily Wonkong.